Hello, welcome. I am your host, Ali A. Alomi. Welcome to Head On History. I'm so glad to have all of you. I'm going to start this podcast up with uh, some cool news. Um, Drew from the Wonders of the World podcast had me on to discuss uh, Damascus, early Islam, and the Umayyad mosques. I talked about this a couple episodes ago. He just released his episode uh, last week. So go and check it out. Wonderspodcast.lipsyn. That's L I B S Y N.com. Drew is an awesome person. Uh, to talk to it was such a fun conversation uh, it's great because it's not really an interview it's just back and forth he's very informed about world history and the history of islam so really easy to have a conversation with him um, and the podcast itself is a really fun podcast there's not a lot of people who are able to kind of combine these multifaceted interests from food and travel and history there's a kind of personal component to like a almost a feels like almost like a vlog if you will definitely check out wonders of the world podcast really really good stuff um and again that's wonderspodcast.libsyn.com uh and you know let me know what you think about it be sure to go follow him on uh twitter as well and let me know your thoughts. You can tweet at me or hit me up on social media. Thank you, everyone, who have been tuning in. I've been having so much fun uh, the past few uh, episodes with with this Empires of Faith season. It's great. It's nice to kind of take a break. Um, I've been actually planning next season uh, some really interesting stuff coming. So if you're enjoying Head on History, be sure you're, you know, subscribe. Get your friends to subscribe. Spread the word. Because next season is going to be, I'm going to take an interesting angle. We're going to return to Islam but we're going to be doing something a little bit different than what I've been doing up until this point. I'm going to be introducing a history that isn't often discussed, and I don't just know if it's covered on any other podcast. I don't think it is, uh, but I could be wrong. Anyway, so just a little bit of a teaser for things to come. Last episode, we talked about the Hellenic world, and again, uh, it was a very brief introduction, just a little bit of you know uh, a taste of what it means to be you know of the ancient Greeks, right? A taste of Greece, if you will. It's actually a restaurant down here in SoCal, if I'm not mistaken, isn't it? Yeah, it is. A rest- I was talking to our producer here. It's a restaurant down here. Um, yeah, it was just a, b- a basic introduction. And again, if you want more, you can check out the History of Ancient Greece podcast. They do a much better job of getting into the details of it. But what we did in the last episode is talk about the way in which Greek philosophy and ideas then became wrapped up into the Hellenic Empire of Alexander the Great. And it produced this first true notion of the philosopher king, a king that has a sort of civilizing mission, or at least a mission of enlightenment. That's going to be important for us to understand today's topic. This is how I'm kind of linking them together, because today I want to talk to you about Rome. That's right, the great and famous Roman Empire. Now, like the Greek episode, this is just an introduction to Rome. We're going to talk a little bit more detailed about Rome in our next episode, particularly its impact in the development of Christianity and Judaism, which in turn will set the stage for Islam. So today is just a brief chronology of Rome, some of the major themes that I want you to take away from. If you're interested in Roman history, there are other podcasts that do a really good job of going, you know, podcast by podcast, episode by episode, detailing very specific 
you know, histories of Rome. And of course, there are also fantastic books. SPQR by Mary Beard is kind of a classic in the field. Uh, she's kind of the one of the people who really reawokened interest in the classics in the kind of modern moment. Uh, so definitely check out her books. And uh, there may be future seasons where I dedicate wholly to Rome and Rome alone. And the reason um, this might happen in the future is I was obsessed with Rome growing up. It was this weird thing. Here I was as a little brown kid named Ali who was growing up obsessed with history, loved history from when I was young, listening to my grandmother tell history, listening to stories. I loved being a storyteller, loved hearing stories. And of all the history, as much as I enjoyed Islamic history, I loved Roman history. I wanted to be a Roman historian. And in fact, when I was in high school, I spent most of my time actually reading Roman history books. I remember reading Suetonius and Tacitus and Livy in the, in the ninth grade, and I read Aeneas in the tenth grade, or the Iliad, uh, in Virgil's Iliad in the tenth grade. Uh, even when I went to do my, my undergraduate work at UCLA, I was interested in late antiquity, and I was particularly, I mean, my, I wrote my thesis on the Romanization of Christianity, the, the Paideia culture that infuses uh, Christianity and its transformation into an imperial religion and how that then sets the stage for Islam. So I was interested in Islam, but actually quite tangentially. It wasn't until really kind of late in my bachelor's that I started to develop a, even more of an interest in Islam and saw it as the, you know, the career I wanted to go into is to be a historian of Islam in the Middle East. Originally, I kind of saw him myself more as a historian of the Mediterranean and very interested in Rome. You know, so just a little preface of why I'm so interested in this. It is a cool topic. And for many kind of history buffs and nerds, Rome is the topic. It is the empire by which modern America looks back on and goes, this is who we see ourselves as. You know, especially in some political circles. Dick Cheney and Wolfowitz in the 90s wrote about America as the new Rome, right? This new Americana and kind of reference to the Pax Romana uh, of, of Augustus. So there is definitely deep uh, and deliberate political connections to Rome. There's not one singular uh, historical link. There's no such thing as that, you know, from Rome to America doesn't exist, right? Some complicated history. We there's not a singular linear progression in history, and there's certainly not one connection to Rome. But we imagine ourselves as very Roman, and Rome has a special place in our heart. I have a colleague of mine, Bree, who actually works on the depictions of Rome in film, and she talks about how most depictions of Romans are often vis-a-vis -vis the British because the British accent is associated with the aristocracy and they will see Rome as this kind of thing to aspire to. That they don't, we don't often have Roman flicks with American accents even though they're made in America or that Americans are deeply interested in Rome. So there's all sort of kind of cultural connotations to the Roman Empire. And it's important to understand that the Roman Empire is has a huge effect on world history, particularly on the Mediterranean, and will set the stage for Islam. Islam, you cannot have a discussion about Islam without talking about some of the Roman conditions in the same way that you can't talk about Islam without talking about some of the Sasanian conditions. Both of these empires contribute so significantly to Islam that there is a whole move in early Islamic history to situate Islam in late antiquity, to talk about it as at the crossroads of the collision of empires. So Rome is important. 
for Islam, for world history, for American conception of self, for the notion of Western civilization, which is this kind of imagined concept that emerges in post-Enlightenment, post-Renaissance, and definitely in the era of the nation-states. So it is a very important empire, and not and it, it, it and it has a huge kind of effect throughout the world. China had connections to Rome. The Sasanians had connections to Rome. Various nations today had connections to Rome and will still invoke those connections. So it isn't, it is, we can't overstate the importance of this empire. If the Hellenic Empire is the beginnings of the kind of the early conceptions of Greekness, you know, the philosophies that then get distilled and passed down into Rome and then into the Muslim world and then from the Muslim world back into the Renaissance, then it is really Rome that gives us our political structures, our notions of law, our notions of even quote-unquote civilization and that's very deliberate right so this is why i think roman history is important and why um you can't really overstate it i do think that uh focusing just on rome without its connections to the near east or the sasanians is a bit of a misstep and so you will see that even though as i set up this episode to talk about rome in our next episode we're going to talk about how rome engages in the middle east because as great as rome is it's not just a city or an empire in Europe. It's actually the effects that it has in the Mediterranean that produces the most important and consequential moments for history. Christianity, Judaism. It only emerges within the context of Rome's engagement in the Near East. So we're going to decenter Rome in our next episode. But today, let's start with the actual history, just giving a brief chronology and a dissection of its society and religion. It is believed, based off of various historians like Plutarch and Livy uh, and others, that Rome was probably founded in April 21st, 753 BCE. It's kind of the thing that everybody knows. We are not sure, though. There's not a lot of clear evidence of when Rome originally emerges as a, a, a concept, as an idea, as a city, as a kingdom. And I say kingdom because at first, Rome was a monarchy. The belief is that the first king of Rome was a guy named Romulus. Romulus was the son of Rhea Silva, who was the daughter of the monarch of Alba Longa of Laetium. Now, Laetium is a conglomerate of kingdoms and cities that was originally established by a guy named Aeneas. Now, Aeneas is connected to the Trojan War. So last episode, we talked about the Trojan War, the arrival of the Mycenaeans, their war against the Trojans, the emergence of this notion of a sort of Hellenic civilization at war and consolidating all the various city-states. This story of the Trojan War is, is a kind of old epic that then gets codified in the Greek version in the Iliad and the Odyssey, and then in the Roman version, the Aeneid, which is the story of Aeneas. And so in some ways, the kind of founding myths, the Homeric myths of so-called Greek civilization, the Iliad and the Odyssey, have a counterpart, a Roman counterpart that is actually um, commissioned by Augustus, and that is the Aeneid. The Aeneid tells the story, to some extent, of the consequences of the Trojan War, that after the Trojan War, the last remaining nobles, a small group of them, flee, and leading this new kind of group of refugees is a guy named Aeneas, and Aeneas, like 
Odysseus goes on this journey that takes forever, and he goes all over, he even ends up in the underworld at one point, and he meets a woman that he falls in love with in Carthage, uh, Dido, right? And then eventually he makes his way into what is modern-day Italy, and he founds Alba Longa. He becomes the forefather of the Romans. He is the ancestor of Rhea Silva. Rhea Silva then supposedly gets uh, sequestered by one of her uncles. She's a virgin who is unable to have children until Mars shows up, the Roman god of war. And Mars gets busy with her. She ends up pregnant, has twins, Romulus and Remus. But her uncle, Amulius, doesn't like this. He's like, uh-uh, I can't have anybody threatening my rule. So he sets Romulus and Remus on the riverbank of the Tiber hoping that the overflooded waters will kill the two babies. But a she-wolf comes along, suckles these two babies until Faustulus and Acalarentia come along, shepherds, who raise these boys as their own. Eventually, the boys find out who their true ancestry is. They are descendants of Aeneas, descendants of Venus and of Mars, love and war. And they go on and they overthrow their uncle Amulius and they restore Numitor to the, to the throne. They then go off and find their, found their own city based on this hill known as the Palatine Hill. But there end up being a, a conflict between these two brothers. And Romulus kills Remus. So the story of the founding of Rome has all the hallmarks of traditional mythology. If it sounds familiar to you, that's because these tropes have been seen before. We've seen these tropes when we talked about Cyrus the Great, a boy who kind of went off and was raised by shepherds and then comes back and restores order. That's Cyrus the Great. It's the story of Moses. It's a very common motif. Young boys who are born in the kind of danger, and then they are, they are protected from that danger. They're raised as ordinary people, so they have a connection to the people. And then they return and restore righteousness and rule and whatnot. But Rome also throws in the legend of that, that Romulus kills Remus. You know, a very kind of Cain and Abel story. And in some ways, this is meant to kind of justify the bloody nature of Roman civilization, of Roman society. That it is a martial society, but it's also a society that creates beauty, Mars and Venus. We don't actually know if Romulus was the first king, but this is the myth that the Romans tell themselves. And that in turn tells us something about how Romans saw themselves. They saw themselves as descendant from the gods. They saw themselves as connected to the Greeks in some way, shape, or form. Their eventual conquest and absorption of Greek philosophy, their conquest of the Greek city-states, can all be seen within this context of trying to justify or, or seen as a sort of justification or revenge of the Trojan War. They will often talk about the Greeks as being intellectually brilliant but physically inferior. Right, So there is this whole discourse that emerges that justifies empire. The stories that we tell ourselves help us not only understand our personal self, but the collective self, the communal self. In many ways, early examples of history are national histories or imperial histories. They're histories that are done for propaganda purposes, and it isn't until relatively recently, with some exceptions, obviously, that historians have turned that, that we are now historians of gender and historians of minorities who speak truth to power and push back on kind of national myths. 
Originally, that's not the case. We created those myths, and we see this in 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 uh, the the Aeneas or the Aeneid, right? Virgil's Aeneid is very much the founding myth of Rome. It helps us understand how the Romans saw themselves. Anyways, returning to the kind of history here, by about 510 BCE, we believe that the monarchy that had existed for several hundred years were overthrown, and a republic was established. The ancestor of Brutus. The guy who ends up killing Caesar is the leader of the revolutionaries who overthrow the monarchy. And that history, that personal ancestry and history, is what then inspires Brutus during the era of Julius Caesar. From 510 on, you have a republic in which uh, society is ruled through consensus by the nobles. We'll talk about uh, those division of society in just a moment until the coming of Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar forms a sort of uh, military alliance with multiple people, three kind of people. He divides up power really between himself and his friend Pompey, who rules in the city, while uh, Julius Caesar is uh, ruling with his troops out in Gaul. They really uh, are able to kind of establish this more militaristic expansionist rule as a result of a guy who came before them, and that's Sulla. Sulla sets the stage for Rome being ruled by dictators. Now, Rome has occasionally had strong men appear. The Republic, we've talked about this when we talked about Greek democracy, that popular representation of some sort is vulnerable to the need for a strong man. If you are stuck in, in kind of committee, unable to reach a conclusion, you need someone to come in and resolve your problems. And so in many ways, the dictator is the built-in both flaw and solution to the problems of the republic and the problems of a sort of popular representation. Sulla sets the stage as the first real kind of big military dictator who purges the city. He establishes, uh, you know, his, his rule for several several years. He basically believes that he is a man to save Rome from degeneracy. Now, he's in, he, uh, interestingly, Julius Caesar is not on, on good terms with Sulla, but Sulla inspires Julius Caesar a lot. A funny kind of anecdote about Sulla is that he was in love with this male actor who was his boyfriend for years. And he rules as this brutal dictator, and he ends up just dying in his sleep, retiring, and hanging out with his actor friend for the rest of like his the end parts of his life. It's a really weird story. One of the few dictators that go on and, and kind of just live. Most dictators end up getting killed. Most rulers end up getting assassinated. But Sulla, just, you know, he's like, ah, oh, I'm going to hang out with my actor boyfriend and fuck everything else. He just leaves, so he does. I think the only other person who kind of does this is Diocletian, if I'm not mistaken. Diocletian also kind of restores the empire and then goes, all right, peace, I'm retiring. So anyways, Julius Caesar is really influenced by the experience with Sulla. While not agreeing with Sulla on most things, he does see the need to restore the Republic. The Republic is in shambles. And so he takes on a series of military campaigns in Gaul. These campaigns are eventually seen as illegal or there's some machinations to make them illegal because he's had all these troops under his command outside the authority of the Senate. 
He comes back in eventually. Uh, there's a series of wars between him and Pompey. He eventually, uh, also with with uh, uh, Cicero and Brutus, who kind of rise up against him. He forgives Cicero and Brutus. He plans on forgiving Pompey, we believe, but then Pompey flees to Ptolemaic Egypt. Remember, the Ptolemies are the successors of Alexander the Great in Egypt. We'll talk about them uh, later on. Uh, and he gets killed. He gets killed, and this really pisses off uh, Julius Caesar. But, you know, what can he do? And he returns to Rome as a triumphant ruler when he crosses the Rubicon, bringing his army from the first time since Sulla into Rome. He says, Alia ecta est, the die has been cast. You can't go back from here. He rules as dictator, as a sort of tyrant for several years, but he refuses to be treated as a monarch. He does see himself as a reformer. And eventually, the descendant of the original Brutus, this new Brutus, joins a plot to kill and assassinate Julius Caesar. And they do in 44 BCE. The death to tyrants, right? This was the end. No more dictators. But the reality is that by killing Julius Caesar, they actually facilitated the transformation of the Roman Republic into an empire. Julius Caesar's uh, nephew or adopted son, Octavian, ends up emerging as one of the most powerful political forces along with his former general, Mark Antony. And by 27 BCE, Octavian has defeated Mark Antony in Egypt. He's defeated Cleopatra. He has seized the breadbasket of the, of the Mediterranean. And he returns and is named dictator and ruler for life. He takes on the title of Augustus. He takes on the title of Princip, Princeps, and successfully in that moment reorders Roman society from a republic to a principate. And what is a principate? A principate is the first emperor, but they don't fully call themselves emperor. They are imperator, they have military power, imperator or imperium refers to sort of military power, but the princeps is the first citizen, the first amongst equals, if you will. This is in in, in many ways our kind of notions of the presidency, the American presidency are shaped by this idea the princeps, the first amongst equal, out of, out of um, uh, many one, right? This, this concept is very much e pluribus unum, right? Out of many one, the first amongst equals. The princeps, that's very much Roman. It comes from this idea that he is the leader and therefore the, both the figurehead, this kind of symbolic leader, but also he lives a life that other people are to aspire to. Now, Augustus never truly lived up to his own principles. There's many historians that talk about he was probably a hypocrite, but he did. he's a true believer. He believes in reforming Roman society, and he believes in restoring old Roman traditions. These old Roman traditions are known as the Mas Maiorum, or the way of the ancestors. Now, I'll talk about that in just a minute. But before we go any further, let's talk about the social division within Roman society so you get an understanding of where the princeps was. Roman society had two groups of people. You had non-citizens who were made up of freemen and slaves. Roman society was a slave society. Most ancient societies were. Slaves, however, were quite interesting. Slaves were integrated in society. They were part of your household. They were your household slaves. They were also the people who carried out the vast majority of labor. Now, 
when you have a society in which most of the labor or a significant amount of the labor is carried out by slaves, that means that there isn't a lot of jobs for freemen, and freemen are the other group here. Freemen are people who are laborers, ordinary artisans and workers and whatnot. These people um, are are, you know, are going to become an important economic component of Roman society. When they don't have jobs, when they're unable to get work, they are the mob. They are the people you have to appease. This is why you have to give them bread and circus, and well, that's later on, right? But the slaves do most of the work, so there's always a tension in Roman society between where to allocate work. It's cheaper to have slaves do the work than it is to have freemen doing the work. Freemen can also be your agents. So a lot of Roman families the, the, uh, were led by the head of the household, the male. This is known as the pater familias. The pater familias usually was part of the citizenship. The citizens were plebeians and patricians. And then, of the, and then there's a kind of third class that comes out of both of them, and those are the senators. The senators are the representatives of Rome. They are organized. This entire society is organized around the family unit. And the family unit is the paterfamilias that I just mentioned, with the father at the head of the house. And the father would maintain all public connections, work, marketplace, etc. He's the one that bought slaves, he's the one that had agents, and he would hire freemen to do work on his behalf. He might own land that people would farm for him. Now, when we say he was in charge of all labor and work, that didn't necessarily mean that the paterfamilias himself or the father did the work. No, he had agents that did everything for him. A wealthy Roman made money through his agents, through a patron-client system. This structure then put all authority, economic, financial, social, political, in the hands of that one person, the father. The father then ruled over a large family, an extended family that included his wife, his children, his slaves, his maybe his mother-in-law, his father-in-law, other people who would be part, his cousins even could possibly be part of the adopted children, all part of this kind of family unit. But the slaves were part of this grouping. And the slaves were in charge of running the day-to-day household, usually overseen by the mother, who would run things like the kitchen. She never actually cooked, but would have uh, other the slaves do the cooking, but she would decide what meals would be served. She would be in charge of hosting uh, all the uh, you know parties and, and festivals that would be held in the house. She would oversee all of that. The slaves would oversee the education of the children, usually a Greek slave who would teach the classics. You know, it's funny to call them the classics, but they were. You would, they would teach them math and you know, they would teach them arithmetic and rhetoric and philosophy so that a good Roman boy or a good Roman child grew up educated. Education was seen as a civic duty. In order to be a citizen, you had to be informed. You had to be educated. You had to be able to hold a debate and hold a conversation. This is part of a broader culture that we would call paideia culture. And paideia culture is kind of this Greco-Roman notion of philosophy and education. 
And it included kind of both uh, practical learning as well as specific subjects like history and rhetoric and whatnot. And the point of this was to really kind of socialize people into society, to socialize them to be good patricians, to be good citizens, and so on and so forth. This was the social structure. This is what the base of Roman society was, this paterfamilias. And this expanded outward into the government. At the head of the government was the princeps. He became the sort of paterfamilias of the empire. And his extended family that he kind of ruled over would have been the Senate. And the Senate is made up of all sorts of components of tribunes and of the plebs and tribunes and, and consuls and senators and, and so on and so forth. And there were also, there was even orders, the equestrian order there's, of knights, right? There's whole kind of broad society. I'm not going to talk about the kind of social structure of the government. I'm just not interested in, in that type of history. I'm not an administrative historian. It's just not my thing. Um, I, I, they can, I can do a future episode about it, but I don't think it's as important just to, um, for me, what I want to emphasize is the way in which the family unit also inspired the broader kind of political structure. And this is how religion enters into the conversation. And this is where I really want to focus on. Roman religion was kind of complicated. On one hand, you had this notion of the mas maiorum, the way of the ancestors. And the family was about cultivating that way to live up to the way of the ancestors. And as the family, the individual family unit does it, so too does society more broadly and does so through the government. So at the individual level, you are to cultivate the way of the ancestors. Then the Roman government was to cultivate the way of the ancestors. Your personal cultivation of the way of the ancestors would then bring blessings and goodness and, and, and success and fortune to your family and the people that were under your charge, your slaves, your servants, and so on. The government's cultivation of the way of the ancestors, the Mas Maiorum, would then bring goodness and blessings and whatnot to the state. So these two are linked to one another, which is why I wanted to talk about the paterfamilias. Now, what is the way of the ancestors? Mas Maiorum is made up of several components. Fides, Pietas, Religio, Cultus, Disclipnia, Gravitas, Constantia, Virtus, Dignitas, and Actoritas. All of these are considered virtues to be cultivated. The most important for us to understand is pietas, religio, and cultus. Pietas is good relations with the gods. This is having being on the gods' good side, being friendly with the gods, doing right by the gods. In turn, the gods would do right by you. This was known as do et des. I give and you give, or I give, therefore you give. Translated roughly, but do et des. I give, therefore you give. It is a transactional relationship, a relationship that you do right by the gods and they do right with you. That would be pietas. How do you then maintain that pietas? How do you do right by the gods? Well, you do right through religio and cultas. Religio and cultus are the Roman word, the Latin words that we actually get the word religion from. And I think the Roman understanding of religion is going to deeply influence Catholicism and Protestantism. One can make the argument that religio, that is the uh, practice of uh, the state religion, formalized religion carried out hierarchical through ritual, inspires and influences early Christianity. And pietas, the kind of personal, private 
do right by the gods relationship inspires Protestantism. And the difference between the two can be explained, can, can, can be seen as sort of a Roman structure that the Im, embedded in Christianity, that as Christianity becomes Romanized, it absorbs both of these components, this kind of pietas component, the personal faith, do right by the by God, and then the cultist, the kind of official, the cultus and religio, the official acts and rituals and whatnot. And then the division of Protestant and, and Catholicism can in some ways be seen as, as, as influenced by the, the kind of differences here, especially if you read kind of the um, histories of Judaism and Christianity and how they develop a Boyardin's uh, borderlines. The partitioning of Judeo-Christianity really, I think, emphasizes this. Early Judaism, in many ways, sees itself as a continuation of Roman religio in some some sense, right? A much older notion of religion, that is, religion tied up to the community and the state. Not a personal matter of fate, but an act of creating communal identity. That's not just unique to Rome. That is the, how religion existed up until this point. All the kind of religions we've talked about would fall under the concept of religio. And then Christianity, as it develops, moves forward further and further away from religio towards pietas. And that's what you see Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity, all about private faith, right? Not necessarily about right ritual or right action. But for the Romans, it was about formal acts of worship. You had obligations. There were rights that the gods had. You had to do right rituals. And this was intimately tied to the official state. The function of the state was to order society through religion. Rituals and practices maintained the empire and they maintained society. Your personal acts of devotion maintained order within your household, while the state actions of religion ordered society and the empire. That's how these two balance each other. This is the mirroring that we're seeing between the private and the public. And therefore, state functionaries carried out religious practices. There was no separation of church and state as we think it because there's matters of religion are matters of the state and matters of state are matters of religion. There's actually a really great show, the HBO series uh, Rome was probably the most historically accurate depiction of uh, Rome that we've seen so far. I think I Claudius, the old BBC series, I think it's BBC is pretty accurate in terms of really doing a good job of, of maybe not getting the history right, it's a bit muddled, but getting the depiction of Rome very accurate in some regards. And then followed by, I would say, Rome. A lot of the kind of other stuff that we've seen out there depictions Rome not very accurate. But in particular, I think in matters of religion, Rome does a good job. And there's this really great moment, the scene in which there there's a plot that they're going to condemn, the people who are anti-Julius Caesar are going to condemn him in the Senate. But it's going to be a symbolic act because they're hoping that Mark Antony, who is the tribune of the plebs, will veto the condemnation. So it was this kind of like, oh, we're going to condemn him, but we're not going to condemn him because it's going to be vetoed. They're trying to have their cake and eat it too. So they do this condemnation, and then they go, Mark Anthony, veto the motion. But before Mark Anthony can veto the motion, a fight breaks up in the Senate House, and they end up fighting with one another, and the veto isn't heard. So they turn to the speaker, and they go, did the veto get you know, mark down in the records. He's like, no, the veto wasn't heard. The motion is continued. We have condemned Julius Caesar. And then they go, well, wait a minute, but we technically didn't close the session. Could we technically veto it tomorrow? And he goes, yes, oh, we could do that. And he goes, oh, this 
old fool stupid rules and he goes these aren't these aren't just these aren't just rules it's a matter of religion and that scene really encapsulates what i'm talking about this kind of notion that matters of religion were matters of state and matters of state were were regulated and ruled and ordained by religion the religion of the ancient romans as i was taught i took a class with uh the brilliant uh uh, professor Malors, Robert Malors at UCLA, who I think is retired now, he's emeritus professor. He told me once, he goes, Roman religion is mostly Greco-Etruscan, Greek gods with Etruscan augury. And that stuck with me for the, um, you know, for years now. And I think it's true. Most of the Greek, you know, the kind of deities that we see in Rome are older Greek deities that are kind of Romanized. But you also have Etruscan influence, particularly through the form of augury, and that is fortune-telling. Or it was not just fortune-telling in terms of like, tell me my future, but fortune-telling in terms of trying to divine the will of the gods. In fact, the word divination literally means trying to understand the will of the divine. In religio and cultus, you had these pontiffs. Now, pontiffs were the chief priests of the state, and they were in charge of interpreting the will of the gods. They were the ones who would officiate festivals, they would interpret state law, and they were the ones that dealt specifically with auguries. What is an augury? An augury is a form of divination, uh, and the person who uh, does this divining to interpret the will of the gods was known as an augur. And in Latin, literally, auspex meant one who looks at birds. Auspex is where we get auspices. This is the looking at the birds. And traditionally in Roman religion, in the Roman practice, it involved birds, birds in flight. You would divine how the birds flow. You would have a staff, a curled staff, staff, the pontiff would, he would trace out a square or bless a window, and then the way that the birds would fly, the auspex would then be able to do an auspices. They would say, this is divined by the gods, this is what the gods want. There's also a sort of sacrificial uh, divination that was also done known as haruspice, in which the sacrificed victim's liver would be interpreted. You would look at the chicken livers, goat livers, and also sometimes human livers, uh, though not, there's not a lot of evidence of human sacrifice. Sacrifice, there are some examples of the homo sacher, that is, the sacred human would be ordained uh, as killable vis a vis the religion. Now, the auguries were so important that they literally ordained everything in Roman society. Whether you would have an election, whether you would pass a particular law, uh, whether you would have uh, you know, a particular policy, anything that you would do, you would first get an augury done. And the augury done by Roman state officials, the pontiffs, would then say, yes, the gods say okay, no, the gods say no. The, the auguries didn't just have to come in the form of birds, though that was the most common. There was about five major auguries. The first is known as excalo, and that means uh, anything from the sky. This referred to things like lightning, thunder, wind, storms. You would look at it and go, that is the will of Jupiter. Then there's uh, ex auibus, which is from birds, looking how the birds looked. And then there's ex tripidus, and this is from the feeding of birds. Now, this is an interesting one. You would basically put out grain, and the birds would eat it. And if they ate it, that was a good omen. And if they didn't eat it, there was a bad omen. So a funny story about this. In the Battle of Drapana in 249 BCE, during the First Punic Wars, a military commander known as Pulker 
says that he needs to take the auspices before this battle. And so what he does is he takes these chickens, sacred chickens, on board on his boat for this naval battle. And one on the morning of 429 BCE, he puts out the grains in order for the chickens to eat. And if the chickens eat the grains, that means that the battle has been blessed and they can go forward. But if the chickens don't eat, then that's a bad sign. Well, guess what the chickens do? The chickens don't eat. The chickens don't eat. It's a horrific omen. Uh, the people are panicking. His soldiers are very uncomfortable. So what does Polkar do? He decides that he's going to interpret this a different way. And he shouts out, Bibunt quonium esse nulunt. If they won't eat, let them drink. And he throws the chickens overboard into the ocean in this act of like, I don't know if it's like subversion, insanity, but for whatever reason, that ended up like moralizing the troops. Like, all right, fine. If they, if they don't eat, they'll drink. And that's a sign from the gods that we will go on and fight. Of course, you could also interpret it as him just saying, F it. Who cares what the gods think? We're going to have this war. But I always, if they won't eat, let them drink is one of my favorite moments in Roman history. And when I, when I read that back in the day, I fell in love with it. Now, again, we don't know if it ever happened, but there are some records of it, and it's interesting. Then they're continuing on this ex quadrupedius, which is the uh, looking at four-legged animals, and then there's ex dirides, which is basically any other sign. You know, if you suddenly see some something happened, or you know something melts, or any kind of random acts could be an ex dirides. In addition to the augurs and the uh, uh, people, the pontiffs who were in charge of religio, there were also flamen. Flamen were kind of official priests of the various cultus. Cultus would be the official hierarchy and practices of individual gods. So you would have all sorts of different gods. You would have uh, Jupiter Maximus, Mars, Hecate, Janus. All of them were very popular deities and they had their own cultus. Now, who was the chief god, this Jupiter Maximus? Well, he was the father of all the gods, a sky god, a god of lightning, the uh, equivalent of Zeus. Jupiter Maximus literally means uh, the highest, most powerful and Jupiter might likely be Ayupater, our father. Uh, perhaps that's where we get the phrase our father from. I'm not quite sure, but Jupiter is this kind of chief god. Now, the auguries done by the uh, pontiffs and the cults uh, regulated and uh, attended to by the flamens all went hand in hand with the empire. The expansion of the empire was ordained by the gods as divined by auguries. And when you expanded the empire and you conquered and were victorious, you would then return home and an act of religious obligation and vow keeping, you would build a temple to a cultist, to one of the gods, so that they can house the cultist. You would celebrate the victory through a triumph. Now, a triumph we see as a sort of secular military parade, but there is no notion of secular here. Religion and state are intertwined intimately. This military victory is actually a religious procession. It is timed by the auguries, it has specific prayers and purifications, and it honors the victorious general who would literally embody Jupiter Maximus. He would become Jupiter for the day. Yet despite this divinity, they would have someone standing behind the ruler or the general or the commander or the victorious person, and they would say, Memorimento, remember 
life, remember death, remember mortality, in order to remind the person never to become too egocentric, never to usurp the gods, that yes, they would become representative of Jupiter Maximus for the day, but they should always remember their humility, their dignitas, their, their, their uh, roots. So all of this was part of Roman religion. The main gods, as I mentioned, Jupiter Maximus, Mars, Hecate, and Janus, these were the most popular ones. Juno was also very popular. Uh, Jupiter Maximus was really the god of Rome. He was the god of gods. Uh, Mars was the god of war. The field of Mars was literally a place in Rome where you would gather and the soldiers would gather. Hecate was the goddess of crossroads and ghosts and death and magic. Uh, Janus was the god of crossroads and doors and two ways and entries and contracts. Mercury was very popular, who was the god of merchants uh, and travel and communication as well as Apollo, uh, who was uh, the god of healing and the god of light and the sun. Um, and of course, uh, you had uh, Juno, the goddess of marriage and contracts, so you would make vows. There was Vestia, who was the goddess of the hearth and had her own specific priestesses dedicated to her, known as the Vestal Virgins, women that would enter into a sacred priesthood, a priestesshood, uh, and serve as contract bearers. They would hold the will of Roman officials, including the will of the Roman emperor, so all the kind of contracts were dealt by them. And the Vestal Virgins kept the heart of the entire Roman Empire uh, burning, they would keep it alive. Um, you had a bunch of other kind of minor deities as well. Fortuna was a very famous goddess and goddess of fortune and wealth and luck. And a bunch of these kind of either other deities, goddesses of victory and whatnot. So there was a lot of deities. And part of this was because that there was a, a sort of absorption of the gods. As the Romans expanded into the Mediterranean, there was a Romanization of the Mediterranean. Everywhere they went, they built Roman cities. In this way, they carried on the legacy of Alexander the Great, who would like the Romans, I mean, the Romans like Alexander the Great, saw their job as sort of civilizing the world. They spent Roman values wherever they went. They built Roman cities wherever they went. It's why you can go to a place like Bergamon in Turkey um, and see Roman architecture, or Ephesus in Turkey and see Roman architecture, or Caesarea in the Levant in modern-day Israel-Palestine and see Roman architecture. The Romans Romanized the Mediterraneans, and, and by spreading their kind of cities and culture and value, but in turn, they also absorbed the gods. They saw that religion and tradition, they provided social order. So in a sense of continuity, in a sense of continuation, they would keep the gods. You would conquer a people, but you wouldn't you know, disturb the gods, the gods you wanted to be on your side. So Romans brought on all sorts of gods. So in addition to kind of the traditional Roman gods that they had, they also had all these other foreign gods that they would absorb into their society. They didn't see a problem with it. They had no issues with gods joining their pantheon. They were very dynamic. And in turn, this influenced their Roman imperial policy. This was a very dynamic empire. While it was brutal and suppressive when it wanted to be, it could be very brutal. It would uh, crush rebellions, uh, destroy cities. At the same time, it also had a very smart imperial strategy. It tended not to change too much on the ground. It would absorb your very gods, recognize your gods as important as the Roman gods, so long 
as you made sacrifices to the emperor. And this was the other official cultus, and that was the cult of the emperor. From Julius Caesar on, emperors were made into gods, mostly after their death. Julius Caesar, after his death, was named a deity, a son of Venus. But Augustus was named a deity during his life. In the foreign, in the kind of outside territories, he was named a god where he had a temple built for him. Now, an interesting thing is that is while a god, uh, emperor could be divine while he was alive, they generally were divine outside the actual province, the actual center of Rome. So the provinces could worship the emperor, but at home he wouldn't claim to be divine specifically. In fact, when, when Caligula uh, claimed to be a god, most people saw he was crazy. Historians talked about him as if he was crazy. Um, and it wasn't just emperors that became god, the wives of emperors. Livia quite famously became a god. Claudius made her uh, a god, and she was the wife of Augustus. She became the, the queen of heaven. Now, this notion of the emperors as God, the cult of the emperor, is what really solidified imperium, their imperial power. And it helped the establishment of certain dynasties. For example, Vespasian, after the death of Nero during the Civil War in 69, rough 70 BC, uh, CE, uh, he establishes the Flavian imperial dynasty by harping on this, well, the um, we are divine, we are divine. So what, as a policy practice, the divination, the apothesis of uh, Roman emperors, the transformation of them into gods, was a good policy, a policy that ensured that they would extend their authority. They became not just the paterfamilias of the state, but they became almost uh, an equivalent of Jupiter Maximus in the state. And particularly as it first developed, it was to ensure that they were worshipped out in the provinces. Now, why would you do that? That's because you wanted the provinces to remain loyal. So you conquer a place like Judea, and you go, okay, you can keep worshipping your god in your temple, but you've also got to make sacrifices to Augustus, or you've got to make sacrifices to Tiberius. And by doing that, you then prove your loyalty to the empire. In this way, acts of sacrifice are not just religious, but part of imperial identity. They are to create a communal identity. You are Roman. And what is Roman? Well, Roman worships the gods, but they could also be Jewish. They could also be Greek. They could also be all these other kind of components. So there was this kind of dynamic. Yes, it was a limit. You know, the actual citizenship was limited to the plebeians and the patricians, the aristocratic class and the kind of middle class, if you will. But Roman society was still dynamic, still flexible enough that it could absorb local traditions and local religions so long as you made uh, some form of sacrifice to the gods. And this is the notion of tribute. Tribute we see as a sort of uh, paying of a tax to, to a ruler of some sort, giving them gold. But it's also a religious act. It's an act of creating communal identity. This is important for understanding the Islamic concept of zakat. When we talk about early Islam, one of the main tensions after the death of Muhammad and the rise of the apostasy wars, and this is a research that I've been doing for a while, eventually I'll hopefully to publish it someday, I'll work on the apostasy wars, is this, this act of zakat. You give charity as an act of saying, I am part of the religious community. 
And when you stop giving it, that is your saying, I am not part of the religious community. And that even predates Islam. When the Christians from the kingdom of Axum, you can see a first episode of season one for this topic. Uh, if, when the Christians from Axum conquer the kingdom of Himyar and they over, overthrow it, Abraha, uh, you know, does it on behalf of his, his ruler in, in East Africa. But then when he breaks with that ruler, he stops sending the tribute. The act of not sending tribute or the tax was a way of saying, I am part of a separate imperial identity and a separate religious identity. So this is why the cult of the emperor is important. The cult of the emperor isn't just to magnify and glorify the emperor. It did that. But it also was to extend his imperium, to extend his imperial ideology. As a result of this kind of dynamic quality, the Roman Empire absorbed all sorts of foreign religions, and particularly uh, gods from the Mediterranean made their way to, to Rome. So we find Isis, the Egyptian goddess of magic and, and motherhood. She became very popular in the later Roman Empire. Uh, Cybele, a mother goddess from the Mediterranean, also became very popular. And our good friend Mithrais, who we talked about when we talked about the Sasanians, the, the son of the gods, the son of Zoroaster the son of the god of light and the redeemer of the world, he makes his way over to Rome and has it becomes the kind of competing cult with Christianity when Christianity emerged. A lot of Mithraises' traditions and practices and dates and festivals get absorbed into early Christianity. This kind of dynamic cultural milieu that has a Roman seal of approval at the top, but a dynamic integrative component at the ground level is what makes Roman religion and Roman Empire so successful. The two go hand in hand with one another. The success of the Roman religion and its dynamic quality is reflected in the success of the Roman Empire and its dynamic and integrative quality. These mystery cults of these different religions became so popular that became the religion of the people. These were mystery cults were initiatory and revelatory, but they didn't always have a positive connotation. Not all emperors viewed foreign religions positively, while on the whole, the Roman Empire was integrative and incorporated other religions. It also sometimes viewed it as a threat to the cult of the emperor. When the emperor felt that his power and his authority was being challenged, he would crack down on these. And so some Romans viewed these mystery religions, these foreign religions, as magic. And magic was a bad force. It was a bad thing. It was a force of subversion. That said, a lot of what we would actually consider magic today was probably just normal religion for the Romans. So rituals to bring rain, to bring good harvest. We view something like that as magical, and yet they wouldn't have seen it as magic. Magic more often than not referred to uh, trying to manipulate the forces of nature through foreign means. So it was often foreign gods and foreign practices that were seen as magic. But if you were to make up, for example, a sacrifice to, to you know, Vestia or a sacrifice to Juno in order to bring good harvest or to get pregnant or anything like that, that's not considered magic. That was just good ritual action. So I'm going to end it here today. Hopefully they, this gives you a good introduction to Roman religion and particularly the way in which Roman religion interacts with the state and the cult of the emperor. Here we have imperial imperial gods, gods that justify empire. We've talked in the past about empires that, that would 
call upon the gods to justify their rule, right? We talked about Cyrus the Great saying that, oh, I've been sent by Marduk to establish righteousness. Well, we see this very much so with the Romans. They saw the Romanization of their world, the Mediterranean, the Levant, North Africa, as part of a religious practice, spreading not just Roman uh, culture and Roman traditions and Roman cities and Roman society, building up these beautiful cities all around the world, but also simultaneously as an act of religion, as an act of of ordained by the augurs who had interpreted the will of the gods. The gods allowed the uh, Romans to expand, and in turn, by expanding, that was a sign of the blessing of the gods. So it went hand in hand. The empire justified the religion, and the religion justified the empire. Of course our gods are real. Look at our empire. If you are interested in, in hearing more about this, let me know. You can always hit me up on social media at A-A-O-L-O-M-I on Instagram and on Twitter or use the hashtag Head on History. I'm always checking that. If you've been enjoying these podcasts, don't hesitate to head over to iTunes and leave some uh, five-star reviews, write some comments, and I'll read them out on our last episode. Uh, we've got a couple in this season. Uh, thank you for those who have written it. I'm going to definitely give you all a shout-out soon. Um, this was a really fun topic to cover, but again, a very big topic, Roman Empire and Roman history is huge and could be a podcast all its own. I just wanted to introduce it a little bit, particularly focusing on the way empire and religion intersect and to help us understand going forward its impact on Christianity and Judaism, which we will continue with our next episode. Anyway, that's all for now. Thank you for tuning in. And remember, stay smart, you beautiful history nerds. (laughs) 